this last few weeks, we've been talking through our community mantras, which means this is a good time to be new here, because the mantra is developed as a way of describing what we were aiming for as a community. When early on we said, hey, we're, we're going to be a church together in South Bend, and the questions immediately came, which are, what's it going to be like? And we started finding language to describe the thing that we actually felt called to. So it's good to be here, first of all, because if you're new, you might want to discover what we're aiming for and decide if you want to be a part of that. Not that we perfectly hit the things that we're describing here, but that we're reaching for them and working toward them together. Also, though, because along the way we discovered these mantras aren't just ways of shaping our community, but they've become something like portable prayers that help us take what happens on a Sunday into our everyday life. And so the other hope, whether you've been here from the beginning or whether you're brand new, is that you find something useful, something helpful to encourage you, to help you maintain some clarity in the day-to-day life that you're walking into going forward. So um, along the way, there's some review here. You might hear some of the same stories, some of the same ideas, because we want to stay focused on, on the central picture of what we are as a community. Uh, but hopefully there'll be enough that's fresh about this to help you right now in the year 2019, where we are, right? I got that wrong a couple weeks ago. Uh, Cool. Let me review where we've been for the first three mantras. We started with sushi, not fish stew. Uh, This is a way of talking about intentional simplicity in our life together. That um, complexity naturally builds in a human life or in a community like this unless you do something about that, right? And before you know it, your calendar is busier than it needs to be and your inbox is fuller than it needs to be and you might wonder why all of your energies seem to be going to a million things that aren't actually building the life that you know that you are here for. And we observed, too, that uh, the best way to stay focused on sushi, on that simple, uh, intentional minimalism of your life, is to know who you are and what you have and what you're here for. Like, who are you individually? What is your life about? For this community, who are we as a community? What are we about? What do you have? What are the gifts, experiences, passions, the difficult things and the wonderful things that have brought you to this moment? All of that's in your hands, right? All of it's part of your life. What do you have? And... Like, what are you here for? What's the project of your life? And as a community, what are we here for as a church? Clarity on those questions helps maintain some simplicity because you know what to say yes to and what to say no to. But a lot of us, I think, are wrestling with those very questions, right? Like when, when you feel a little ambiguity about who you are or what you have or what you're here for, that can leave you a little unsettled. I'd argue those are deeply spiritual questions. They get to the very heart of what it means to be human, what it means for us to be a church. So uh, that takes us to the second mantra, which I don't think answers those questions, but it creates a baseline or a starting point for those questions. And the second mantra is everyone an icon. This comes from the first page of the Bible, where God declares that men and women are here to bear God's image for the world. This is an assertion of profound dignity, and we hear in that word that it's actually good to be human. And that's important because sometimes stages like this, pulpits like this, people like me are the places where you hear that it's bad to be human, that you should hang your head about being human, that you should be ashamed of being human. And frankly, we don't believe that. Now, there are other things that are true of us also, right? Like there are complicated truths about being human. But the first truth, which the scriptures never revoke, is that a human life is a bearer of the image of God for the world. This is an important starting point for us. Then we talked about practices, not performances. This is an answer to the question, what do you do when you look at your life or the world around us and it doesn't look the way you would hope it would look if God had God's hands on it, right? So like here, yeah, we're here to bear the image of God. We're here to look like God, to act like God, to tend to the world in the way that God would tend to the world. But man, you look around and there's just a billion really painful examples of the fact that we haven't tended to the world or even to our own lives 
in a way that brings the kind of flourishing that God would bring if God were directly tending to all of this, right? So we have some questions to ask about what's not working in our lives and what might need healed in our lives uh, and about the world that we've created and how we can grow up and do a better world together. And last week's mantra and then the one that we're going to talk about today are really pictures of how we see that project happening, like where we take seriously the idea that Jesus' main intent is to teach us how to bear the image of God for the world again, which is why the scriptures say that Christ is the image of God and we're invited to look like Jesus in the world, right? So we talked about practices, not performances. Uh, Failure isn't fatal. Everyone gets to play. This is phenomenally good news. We had an unintended object lesson in this mantra last week because we had a printing failure. Uh, So some of you um, got cards with the practices, not performances image on the front, but the fields, not factories summary on the back. I'd like to think we were intelligent enough to engineer that little object lesson, but that was just an honest failure. We didn't intend it. We have purged the building of the errant cards. So now on your way out, if you want to get a proper card, uh, we do have the Practices Not Performances card uh, on the tables along with the other two, and you're welcome to add to your collection. Take extras, give them away, hang them in your office, your bathroom mirror, do whatever you want, uh, whatever makes these helpful for you. But we do have the right ones now. Sorry about that. Uh, So that's where we've been. And today we're going to wrap this up uh, with one final mantra. Um, So let's go back to the beginning of this mantra. Uh, I was working at another church a few years ago, and we were trying to like, crack the code on what we called discipleship. Now, what we meant by that was a little bit of what I just referred to, that, that there's a, a way of being human that we see in Jesus, and we feel called into that, invited into living like that. And that means healing from some things and learning some things and changing some behaviors and practices and growing up into wholeness and fullness, Right. Well, when churches talk about that process of growing up into that vision of life, sometimes we use the word discipleship. Some of you right now are twitching because you have baggage with that word. Others are bored because you've never heard that word. There's a lot of different experiences in the room, but often what churches mean by discipleship is that project where we take Jesus seriously when he says, follow me and learn to live like me, right? Well, the church I was at, we were trying to work on that. It was a big church with thousands of people. And I was part of what you call like a task force. And our job was to design, and what we called it was, quote, a disciple-making system. So we were working on this together, trying to figure out how to help all of these people take seriously the project of like who we are becoming as we follow Jesus together, right? Well, I did what I do when I'm trying to figure something out, which I bought a bunch of books. And so I'm sitting there with my stack of books, and I'm reading through them, trying to understand all these ideas. And I've got old books and new books, and I'm looking at churches like right now who are out there doing things with discipleship, and I'm paying attention to other ideas about formation. And every book I'm reading and every example I'm looking at, there's, there's something wrong, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Like, you ever been there? It's like my intuition was ahead of my brain. Like, my gut like, was sensing something's not adding up, something's missing, something's wrong with all this, but I can't figure out what it is. And because I was focused on it, the question was with me everywhere, all the time for that little season, right? So I'd be in my office reading the books, and the question was with me. But then I'd be out at dinner with friends, and the question was with me. I'd be on vacation or on my day off or laying in bed at night, and I'm, I'm trying to sort out what is it that's not adding up in this whole picture, And in the middle of that season, I go visit my brother. Now, at the time, my brother was living in southwest Michigan. And after uh, a career in high fashion with Prada, like in Chicago and Miami, he became a farmer. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that was our response, too. Like, really? Is this going to work? You know? So I was trying to catch up 
with my brother's experience on the farm, right? Like, this is kind of a whole new world for, for him and for me. And so I go visit him on his farm. He's got 100 acres in southwest Michigan. And he's growing corn uh, and feed crop and, and melons for produce stands. And I'm there kind of learning what's going on there. And I'm paying really close attention because, frankly, I feel about as at home in a farm field as they do on a football field, which is to say not at all. So, like, everything's new to me, right? I'm, like, taking this all in. And it's interesting, all these things that popped, like, fresh for me as I'm in the field with my brother. So, for example, like, when I drove by his farm, it looked like flatland, just like a flat farm field, like the way you feel when you drive from here to Indianapolis any given day, right? It just seems very flat, like, oppressively flat. I get it, right? But you actually walk the field with a farmer, and you discover there's a really significant terrain there, right? And there's high parts and low parts, and my brother's pointing to that, and he's observing how the way the, the field sort of descends here means that when it rains, this part of the field gets saturated, and this sort of high part of the field, when it rains, it doesn't take in nearly as much water. And he's showing me um, places where field rot set in because it was too moist because the irrigation and the rain did too much, and places in the field where things dried out. He's showing me where crops are flourishing and talking to me about why they're flourishing and showing me other parts of the field where they're not flourishing and talking about why. At one point, he shows me two crops of corn that are sitting side by side, and to the naked eye, like my own, I would have thought it was the same corn. But in fact, he used two different kinds of seed for these two different crops of corn, and he wanted to see which kind of seed yielded corn which was more pest-resistant. So he showed me, because he's got full ears of corn growing on the stalk, and so he rips an ear of corn off the one stalk, and he pulls back the husk. Beautiful, like, pearl corn kernels there, right? Just like you wanted to eat it right away, right? Well, then he reaches over to the, the other crop, planted with other seed, and he rips the ear of corn off the stalk, and he pulls back the husk, and the whole thing has been decimated by pests. He starts talking to me about the difference between the two kinds of seed that he planted there. We're out there in the field, and he's talking about the weather that we had, and he's talking about the decisions that he made on when to plant seed based on the almanac and based on what other farmers were doing and trying to time the frost and the growing season and the cost in the market and what he would get for the soybeans that he was growing that year. And like, we're out there in the field the whole time, and this, this awareness slowly dawns on me. So I started thinking about the fact that for most of human history, most human beings have lived pretty close to the field. Right? Not that every human being in history was a farmer, but for most of human history, most of, hu most of humanity has lived pretty close to the field. Like most of humanity had an awareness of how things go in the field. Most of humanity knew that when things go well in the field, it's good for all of us, and when things don't go well in the field, it's bad for all of us. Communal festivals were shaped around the rhythms of the field. You would have harvest festivals, right, where the whole community had a deep conscious awareness of how things had gone in the field, whether it was good or bad. Spirituality, religious practices, cultic practices, idol worship, a bunch of stuff starts evolving around the idea that human beings know that your life lives and dies by what happens in the field. And another thing happens along the way, which is humans usually use things that you can see to describe things you cannot see, right? That's the, why we use metaphors for all sorts of things, right? We use the things that we can see to describe the things we cannot see. And so things that we cannot see might be, for example, the things going on in your soul, in your spirit, in your mind, in your inner world, right? The things that we cannot see might be some of those frequencies that exist between us, and they, they end up getting lived out in very visible ways, but there's those frequencies between us, frequencies of harmony or conflict, right? So there's the things that we cannot see, and then we use the things that we can see to describe them. So for most of human history, it's not just that humanity lived close to the field, 
for most of human history, it's that humanity then used life in the field to describe the things that we cannot see, like the spiritual life. So for example, take Jesus, like in the book of John. This is Jesus speaking about these deep things that he's trying to teach us about, right? And he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You get that, right? Jesus is using life in the field to describe the spiritual life, our union with him, with God the Father, and what happens when we're not tuned into that. Uh, In Matthew 13, Jesus embarks on a series of parables. The narrative begins like this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake, and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. This is like a natural amphitheater, right? They're creating sort of a speaking venue for the day. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. A little later in Matthew 13, then Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Or a little later in Matthew 13, where we read this, he told them another parable, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. So there you have it. Jesus, for example, is using life in the field to describe the the spiritual life, the life of God in the world, the life of the kingdom of heaven, right? Now, the thing is, when you use one thing to describe another thing, the language that you use to describe the thing will profoundly shape your understanding of the thing, right? So when we use life from the field to describe the spiritual life, well, it shapes the way that we think about the spiritual life, right? And then something happened like roughly a couple hundred years ago. And by the way, I think the thing that happened is really, really good in all sorts of ways, except for what I'm about to talk about. The thing that happened is we invented something called a factory, By the way, we're in one right now, so that's good, right? Like, I'm a big fan of factories. Most of my favorite things come from factories. Big fan of factories, okay? But a couple hundred years ago, we figured out that you could build floors and walls in the ceiling, and you could seal an environment, and you could create machines and then get raw materials and put the raw materials into the machines, and you could create widgets, right? And you could have control over the widgets. Everything went the way we wanted. And manufacturing was a huge leap forward for all sorts of human flourishing. And there's lots of good things that exist in the world today thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Big fan of this stuff. But along the way, humanity stopped living as close to the field. And most of us actually live our lives closer to the factory, which means we've been tempted to develop a factory imagination about everything, including the soul, and the way a person comes alive, and the way a church does what it's here to do, right? So I was out there in the field with my brother, and I was thinking about how, how it feels to be in a field, and I was thinking about how the imagination has certain pictures in mind when it lives close to the field, and then I was thinking about all those books I was reading, and I realized those discipleship books about how to do Bible studies and spiritual practices and all that stuff, like, I realized these books were saturated not with a field imagination, but a factory imagination. Anytime anybody says, here's seven steps to the perfect outcome, that's not life in the field as far as I can tell, right? Anytime anybody says, you can put a whole crop of people 
through a system, put them in a machine and get like spiritual widgets on the other end, which is basically what these books were saying. That's an imagination that's been shaped by the factory. And it struck me that's not the way a soul works. That's not the way a community works. That's not the way the spiritual life works. I don't think it's the way God works. I don't think it's how a church should work. And if, I think, if Jesus were here now in the year 2019 talking to us about the way it is that a human being becomes alive or whole or how it is that a community lives out its calling, I don't think he would use factory metaphors. I think he would stick with the field. So our mantra is simply, fields, not factories. Simply feels not factories. Let's, uh, let's pass out these cards. I love the, the image um, that Scott has created for us on this one. If you're wondering what you're looking at, it's actually sort of an anatomical outline of a human heart. Like, not the Valentine heart, right, but the actual, like, heart with parts that I don't know the names to, right? So it's like a human heart, and then inside that heart you see a field with a tree growing. I love this image. And on the back you'll see the spirituality Jesus describes often uses metaphors from the field where patience matters, Seasons come and go, and new life takes many different forms. Now, I want to talk a little bit about fields and factories and the real ways this can play out for your life and for this church. But before I do that, an important disclaimer. This is not suggesting that actual work in the field is somehow better than work in the factory, okay? I want to be really clear about that. This isn't to say there's like a greater dignity to organic farming than there is to the manufacturing that happened in this room uh, just a few decades ago. That's not the point of this mantra. And frankly, you can bring a field spirituality to a factory, and you can bring a factory spirituality to a field. So it's not ultimately about the people and the work that's being done in those places. It's about the imagination that we all develop in the world that we're living in today. Disclaimer, fair, makes sense? Good, okay. Nobody said yes, but I'm just going to pretend that you were with me. Great. <laughs> Let me talk to you about a few of the ways that we see fields and factories as different imaginations that create different ways of approaching the spiritual life, okay? First big difference between a field and a factory is that in factories, there are no seasons. And in fields, there are seasons. Now, I know there might be some factories that actually have seasonality based on supply chains or demand. I get that. But in a factory, there's nothing intrinsically seasonal because you build floors and a wall and ceilings. And in theory, if you can get the raw materials, you can keep that thing going 365 days a year, right? But in a field, like, you can't get away from seasons. You just don't get to pretend that the seasons aren't happening, right? So a farmer's success relies a lot on discerning the seasons and knowing what to do in each season. Have you ever been uh, in a spiritual environment, like a spiritual community or a family or a workplace or just as you look at your own life, and have you thought that the thing was you're supposed to have the same output 365 days a year, just keep cranking output, and then you get to a season where that output isn't coming from your life, and you feel like you're failing or you're doing something wrong? Well, in a factory world, you might be, right? But in a field, of course there are seasons where things are fallow. In a field, of course there are seasons when it looks like nothing is coming out of the ground. It might be that there's actually nothing in the ground, that the, the ground just needs to rest for a little bit. The soil needs to recover its nutrients so that life can come back. Or it might be that the seeds have been planted, but there's a long gestation period because you put that seed in the ground and it might be days or weeks or months before the thing that's been planted starts to break through to the surface, right? So in the field, it's a good thing to know the seasons and even celebrate the seasons. Some of us are in a winter season and we may not realize it, we may not have named it, but the fact is there are things that are done and dead 
and it's time to say goodbye to them. And there may be a grieving process involved in that. Now, if, if we have a factory mindset about our lives, we might struggle to realize this might be a season to say some things are done and dead, and that's not just okay. I mean, that might even be good. That might be clearing the way for new kinds of life in you or in your world, right? Some of us are in a springtime season, which means it's time for planting, which means it's time for new approaches, new ideas, new things. It might be time to take a risk, to stick your neck out, to, to be brave enough to try some things to see if the new life will come from them. It might take a little bit of energy, a little bit of awareness that now is a time to plant, right? Some of us are in the middle of the summer, and I know that like, when you're not a farmer, summer is just, you, maybe you think it's great. It's just trips to the beach, right? But I've learned from my, from my brother and from others, like summer in the field can kind of be grueling. It's hot out there, and you just have to keep putting in the work to tend to the life that's growing, and it's not harvest time yet, so you don't get to taste the goods, right? You don't get to reap the bounty yet, but you're just out there in the heat, and you're doing the work. And then sometimes it's actually harvest season where it's time to take stock of what has grown and like bring it into the storehouse and maybe do something with it. Maybe even enjoy it for a minute, right? Fields have seasons and naming the seasons like in your life, in your family, in your work, and even for this church, I think is really important. Uh, by the way, like I, I know there are communities where numerical growth becomes the trend. And then there becomes this thing where like, it's got to keep numerically growing, right? Because that's the only way we know we're healthy or something like that. But again, I'm like, I don't know. I looked out in my backyard yesterday. It looks dead as a doornail. Nothing is growing out there, right? But it doesn't mean anything's wrong. In fact, in northern Indiana, if we didn't have a season of winter where everything looked dead, we would have more concerns about what's happening ecologically or in the climate or whatever, right? So... Uh, so even as a community, like, for us to take seasonality seriously is going to take some bravery and some discernment to actually cooperate with what God's doing in different seasons here at Stoppin City Church. Uh, seasons. Let's talk about another difference between fields and factories. In a factory, I would argue, it seems that the highest virtue is efficiency. I mean, that makes sense. If you're operating a factory, you should try to make things as efficient as possible. It just makes sense. You should try to figure out how your systems, how your inputs, how your equipment, how your employees, how everything can be as efficient as possible to crank as much output as possible, right? And to do it on the tightest timeline possible because the faster you can do things, the, the better things are in the factory, right? But in the field, I think a lot of success in the field comes from patience because you don't get to design the timelines in the field. My brother plants seed that takes two weeks to grow up out of the ground and expects it to happen in two days. He's just going to frustrate himself, right? And if he tries to manipulate that seed to come out of the ground two days later when it takes two weeks, he might do more damage in the field than good, right? And I think a lot of us in our, in our journeys, like in our, in our careers, in our healing from things, in our relational spaces, I think like we, we feel this pressure to make things happen as quickly as possible. And things don't always happen that way, right? I remember when I was in college and I was um, struggling with some really deep wounds that I had sustained from some childhood trauma. And I was trying to work on these things. I was trying to heal from these things. And I was going to a counselor and I was reading all the right books because, again, that's what I do. I was... Um, 
You know, like I was praying what I thought were the right prayers. I was doing everything I thought I was supposed to do. And really, I was like, would somebody please give me seven steps? I'll do them as quickly as possible. If you tell me I have to climb Mount Everest to get over this nonsense, I'll, I'll do it. I won't be happy about it, but I'll do it if that's what it takes, right? And some of the wisest, holiest people in my life were the ones who looked at me and said, hey, Jay, this might take a while. This might... This might take more than a minute, and you may not be in charge of the timelines. And looking back, like, I'm so grateful. It wasn't the voices who were, like, trying to light a fire under my butt, like, why is this not happening faster? It was the people who said, yep, like, the healing of a human soul, the moving forward of a human story, it might take a little while. I've got um, a really dear friend who is uh, several years into a beautiful recovery journey from substance abuse. And... Um, I was with him uh, at the moment when his recovery journey began, and it was a very intense moment in his life and also my life. And so every year when that uh, sobriety anniversary comes around, I keep it on my calendar, and I'll shoot him a note, or I'll reach out to him, and I'll just tell him I love him, and I'll talk to him about how inspired I am by him and how proud I am of him. But I'm also learning when I do that to say, and by the way, if your recovery journey does not continue to be a straight line, I still love you. I'm still inspired by you. I'm still super proud of you. Even if you fall off the wagon for a moment, like, I know these things, these journeys, these ways that lives heal and move forward, like, they don't operate in the timelines that we want them to. They don't always take the straight line that we want them to. But we've got to learn to be patient with one another in the field and understand that life comes on its own schedule, right? Let's look at another uh, difference between fields and factories. Um, I would argue in the factory, the operative question is, what can you make happen? Are you managing the factory? Are you, are you working in the factory? Well, what can you make happen? Do you need to buy better machines? Do you need to get better raw materials, better supply chains? How quickly can you get the best widgets out uh, as many as possible? What can you make happen, right? Well, in the field, I would argue, one of the more important questions is, what do you do with what happens? Like in a factory, you build a hermetically sealed environment, in theory, where you control all the inputs and all the outputs, and it's about what can you make happen. In the field, it's what do you do with what happens? I learned in the field with my brother, he can have all the best information possible to plant the seeds at the right time. He can um, make the smartest possible decision with the available data that he has, and yet things are going to happen beyond his control. And a spirituality that's just about what can you make happen in your life or in your faith, it'll ruin you eventually because so much of the spiritual life is actually about what do you do with the things that happen that you had nothing to do with, right? So here's an example from parenting because I'm an expert. <laughs> just I'm not an expert parent, but I have been parented. So I've learned some things about, about parenting. Um, so I've been parented, and I've, I have friends who are parents, and I've learned there's a particular thing that if you were a parent in church that you might have heard from a pulpit or a stage, and it comes from the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, and the line is, train up a child in the way they will go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Now, that's a verse about what you can make happen, right? Hey, parent, train your child up in the right things, and they won't go wrong, Right? If you do the parenting right, they won't go wrong. That seems to be the promise of that one little sentence ripped out of context from thousands of years ago and thrown at parents in their faces. 
I don't disagree with the logic of that parable. I think there's a deep wisdom there. And parents, yes, please train up your children in the way they should go. Yes. But what about the days when it doesn't happen? When you did everything you could with the data that you had, and this life that you felt entrusted to raise up didn't go the way that you wanted it to. I would argue parenting is probably as much about what you do with what happens as it is about what you can make happen. And I'm sure of that because ultimately I think parenting is like everything else that really matters, right? Whether it's parenting or marriage or love or whatever your life shape looks like right now, I don't think it's entirely about what you can make happen. It's about what you do with what happens. I wonder how many parents need to be reminded, like Jesus had his disciples for three years, and Jesus ought to be pretty darn good at this thing, right? And these people that he has poured himself into for three years turn out to be absolute failures (laughs) at the moment when he might think he needed them to stand up most, right? And Jesus seems to know that even for Jesus, it won't be about what he can make happen in Peter's life or um, James's life. That it'll be about what he does with what happens. And so, for example, when Peter just utterly falls down on the job, Jesus seems to know that it's time to do something with that. And so after he's resurrected, he lights a fire on the beach, and he invites his friend Peter to sit down with him, and he has a slow and thoughtful conversation. He restores him and renews him and calls him out to be the man that Jesus knew that he was. And just a few pages later, Peter's there at Pentecost leading the early church, Not because Jesus made it happen, not because Jesus was able to lead Peter toward utter success, but I think Jesus knew what to do with Peter's failure. And in your life, there might be things that you can make happen. Great. But I'm telling you, it might be as much about what you do with the things that happen. And for us as a community, there are things that we will try to make happen, things that we will push, designs that we will have, strategies and plans, right? But as a church, we will also try to learn from Jesus What do you do with the things that happen? What do you do with the things that go wrong? How do you look for the hidden opportunity in moments that feel like failure? Uh, And we're learning that from the field. One more difference. These all kind of overlap a little bit. In the factory, I would argue control is a really good word. I'm a big fan of quality control, right? Anybody who has had an iPhone go bad would prefer a little more quality control, right? Yeah, right? Amen? Good. You guys always amen the the strangest things. It's fine. It's my people. (laughs) In the factory, it's about control. We call it quality control. You want perfection and control, right? And the more control you can exercise in the factory, the better your enterprise will go. In a factory, you can ask, what do I want to make? What do I want this to be? Get yourself some raw materials. Get yourself the right machines and make whatever widget you want. You can control the outcomes if if you dial in the inputs, right? In a field, I don't think we really have that luxury, so a better word is cultivation, especially when we're asking about, like, what is the outcome going to be? What do I want this to be? Some of you have been in a religious setting or a family setting or a workplace setting where you were expected to be a widget. It's like a, like a religious cookie cutter was stamped on your life to try to get you to conform to, like, this cloned picture of what a good Christian looks like. And the problem is, like, you're not a widget, you're a person. And so the the question we should ask of our own lives, of our community, of our families, is not, what do I want this to be? What's the perfect outcome? But rather, like, what does this thing want to be? What is intrinsic to it? What is inherent within this thing? What's the good that God has put in this thing that we are here to call out and grow up together, right? I think about my backyard again. And I think about the fact that, like, I could want my backyard to be a citrus 
What's the word for a place where you, is it an orchard? Grove. grove, thank you. I could want my backyard to be a citrus grove, but in northern Indiana, it's not going to happen, or it's at least not going to happen well. I don't care how badly I want limes and lemons every day of the year. It's not going to happen, right? But if I ask myself, like, what grows well in this climate, I might make some different decisions when I submit to the thing, right? Some of you have a life that you've been trying to make it one thing, but the problem is it's not actually the life that God has given you. But the tragedy isn't that you're trying to override that. The tragedy is whatever God has given your life to be, I'm convinced it is sublimely beautiful and unimaginably worthwhile. And if we would ask more questions about what, what, what does God want this life to be rather than how do I control it toward the outcome that I've been told it needs to have, we might discover a kind of life and flourishing out there in the field that we've been longing for, yearning for. I feel that way with, uh, with this church. I remember our first experimental gathering ever, uh, we were at the brick, and um, I was really curious and a little bit nervous because it was the first time that we were going to get a big group of people together and say, let's be a church. And I had a friend who was a part of that gathering who is a wise and discerning person. And so I got lunch with him a few days later, and I asked him, I was like, hey, what did you feel or sense or discern in that gathering? What were you seeing or noticing? And the thing he said to me was so simple but so profound, and it's, it's been like burned into me ever since. Just four words, five, five words. He said, something wants to happen here. Just that, something wants to happen here. As if to say, there, there is a life here which is its own thing. And I heard within that, I don't get to tell it what it is. My job is to discern what it is and to cooperate with it, to, to play along with it, right? And I feel the same thing about your life. I don't care who you are or where you've come from. I don't care what you think about yourself. I think in your life, something wants to happen here. Uh, everyone an icon, everybody a unique carrier of the imprint of God in this world. Something wants to happen in your life, and it is unassailably good. But that good will come to the world not when communities like ours push you through systems and try to make a factory out of your spirituality, but when we dance with one another a little bit and ask, like, what's this good and beautiful thing that wants to come into the world through your life? Something wants to happen here, and we're here to cultivate it together. Uh, factories control, fields cultivation. Um, I was in another field recently uh, with another friend who's out there in the field often. Her name's Nina, and she's like a master gardener in Nashville. And uh, we were hanging out in her field one day, and she was introducing me to her hens and her rooster. <laughs> and then uh, we were walking along to the place where she plants and grows things. And my friend Nina, I'll never forget, she like stopped. She got very excited. I mean, like a sort of intense degree of excitement. And I was trying to figure out like what she excited about. So I'm looking all around. And like her excitement made me think that like, I don't know, maybe the ice cream truck was coming along or a meteor was falling, right? <laughs> And then I realized she stopped, and she's looking at the dirt at the tiniest little thing that's breaking up out of the ground. Just, I mean, like a millimeter above the soil, right? This, this little bit of green. And I slowly got sort of caught up in the feeling that she had, and I had some of the same feeling myself. And I had been thinking about fields and factories for a long time at this moment. And then when I was standing with Nina in her field, it struck me that maybe the most important difference between factories and fields is that fields invite us into an experience of wonder that I don't think is available to us when we are controlling everything. Like as long as we buy into the myth 
that we're completely in charge of our souls, our lives, our communities, rather than collaborating with God who is bringing something unique and unruly and beautiful into the world. I think as long as we live in the myths of the factory, we'll have a hard time finding our souls opening to the wonder of this thing. But when you find yourself in a field and you know that you have worked hard and you know that you've done your part and you know you've made the best decisions that you can make with the available data and yet you also know that the thing is way bigger than you, way beyond you, and then you find some life sprouting up, I think something cracks open in the soul, not just in the soil, right? And I think a little bit of wonder breaks in. And I think that's what's at stake in us maintaining a field spirituality. So, like, I would ask you, not just for the church, I mean, this is certainly meant to shape this church, but I would ask, like, for your life, is there any way that a factory imagination has crept in? Has it begun to shape your expectations for your life, your family, your work, uh, your love, your future? And is it possible that if you went through your vision for your life or your world and asked, how could it be like life in the field, maybe something would open up for you and you'd discover like a different way of playing along with the story that we're a part of? Uh, it's really uh, profoundly humbling and beautiful to see a community uh, work these things out together, so thank you for that. Uh, on your way out, um, please don't go that way to the gate, because every good thing that you're feeling right now will quickly dissolve in angst and anger at the 1145 crowd that's trying to come in. So you can head out that way to the parking lot. Uh, we'll see you next week. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.